0: section 59 of old rail fence corners this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org recording by doug shepherd old rail fence corners edited by lucy leavenworth wilder morris judge lauren cray 1859 in the early spring of 59, my father and brother-in-law started with teams of oxen and covered wagons from our home near Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to seek a location in the west where homes could be had quote, without money and without price, unquote, in the great new state of Minnesota. In October of 59, all of the earthly belongings of my father, being my mother, seven children, and a handful of household goods, were loaded into a wagon drawn by a pair of unbroken steers and we started for our new home with great anticipations our two cows were driven behind the wagon my elder brother drove the steers attached to the wagon and we the younger children drove the cows and in the short period of precisely thirty days we reached our new home in the western part of shelby county now we make the trip in twelve hours but our loads were heavy for the teams we had and through Wisconsin sand and good Minnesota mud we made scarcely more than ten miles a day, camping at night in and under our wagons. The year had been a peculiar one in Wisconsin. There had been severe frost at some time in every month during the entire summer, and corn and other produce were badly frost-bitten. By October 1st all vegetation was brown and dead. But there had been much rain in Minnesota, evidently preventing frosts, and when we crossed the great father of waters at La Crosse, much swollen and turbid, we were greeted by green foliage and the freshness of spring. Vegetation was rank, grass tender, crops good, foliage magnificent and boylike. I at once fell in love with Minnesota. We entered Blue Earth County near the southeast corner, and went as nearly directly west as possible, passing Minnesota Lake near the North Shore, camping for the last time very close to the north shore of lura lake where we spent the night my recollection of the southern part of this county is that it was mostly low and level with a wonderful growth of wild grasses the lands were nearly all taken and there were seen here and there settlers shanties and in some places quite comfortable homes until we crossed the blue earth river west of shelbyville when after leaving the settlers cabins in or near the river timber the picture was wild and dreary to the very limit. Save a few cabins and claim shanties in the vicinity of the mounds, one could look from the river west, southwest, and northwest, and not a sign of human life or habitation could be seen. We were four miles from Shelbyville, and to get our mail we must go this distance and cross the Blue Earth River, either in a canoe or by fording. I remember one occasion in the very early spring, when the river was scarcely free from ice, and was badly swollen, filling its banks. Five or six of us neighbors started for Shelbyville on foot to get our mail, and to hear the postmaster read the news from the weekly St. Paul paper, which came to him, there being at that time, I think, no newspaper taken west of the river. We reached the river. The ice had gone out, and the boat was on the other side. We agreed to draw cuts, and decide who should swim the river, and get the boat. The lot fell upon Jonah, and I have had chills ever since i am not quite certain that the cuts were fairly held father's claim was not a very desirable one soon after he had taken it a man named sam tate came into the country and jumped a claim which adjoined ours upon the east and was the making of a much more desirable farm than ours he succeeded in holding the claim a few days after our arrival a prairie fire came from the west and with a brisk wind swept the whole country with a very besom of destruction we came near losing everything we had. Sam was a loser. Quite a quantity of his hay was destroyed. Very shortly after the fire, he made us an informal call, and in language not the most polite but very emphatic, declared his intention to leave the country at once, and offered to sell us his claim. We bought it. One hundred and sixty acres of land, three acres broken, a small stock of hay not burned, his sod stable, and board shanty. For the purchase price, we gave him a shotgun and hauled two loads of his goods to Mankato. This was my first visit to Mankato. We removed our shanty to our new purchase at once. Two years ago, my brother and I sold the farm for $9,600, and it was well worth it. It seemed at first in those early days impossible to have social relations with anyone. Neighbors as we had known them, we had none. The nearest settlers were a mile distant from us and there were but four or five families nearer than two or three miles distant. But we soon learned that we had neighbours even though the distance was considerable. First one neighbour, and then another, would extend to every family in the vicinity an invitation to spend an afternoon or an evening. Someone would hitch his oxen to his wagon or sled, and going from house to house, gather up a full load, well rounded up, and then at the usual gate for such conveyances we rode and visited and sang until we reached the appointed place where perhaps eight ten or a dozen persons spent the afternoon or evening in the one little room where the meal was being prepared and the table spread there were no sets or clans no grades of society all belonged to the select four hundred and all were treated and fared alike friendships were formed which were never broken and when recalled always revive tender memories august eighteenth eighteen sixty two the sioux indian troubles began there were no railroads, no telegraph or telephone lines, but one stage line, and I could never understand how the reports of these troubles travelled as fast as they did. On August 19th, this whole country had reasonably reliable information of the uprising. A neighbour came to our house in the night, neighbour went to neighbour, and so the news travelled. The men were in a fury of excitement and anxiety, the women and children were quaking with fear. Wagons were hastily loaded with women and children, and a little food, animals were turned loose to provide for themselves houses were left unlocked oxen were hitched to the wagons and a general stampede was started toward the east with all eyes turned toward the west no one knew whither they were going they only knew that they dare not stay a halt was made at shelbyville the strongest buildings were selected for occupancy the women and children were placed inside and the men acted as pickets in our whole country there were scarcely a dozen guns the reports came worse and worse and another pell-mell stampede began for the east, some stopping at Wilton, Oatona, and Rochester. After waiting two or three weeks, and hearing encouraging reports, some of the more venturesome returned to their homes with their families, only to remain a few days, and to be again driven away by the near proximity of the Indians, and the sickening reports of their savage murders. This condition continued until late in the fall when under the general belief that the indians would not move on the war-path in the winter the greater number of settlers returned to their homes to save what they could of their nearly destroyed and wasted crops some never returned with feelings of partial security and encouraged by their escape from slaughter thus far the settlers remained at their homes under an intense strain of anxiety but nearly undisturbed until 1864 when the rumblings and rumours of Indian troubles were again heard. But the settlers were not so easily terrified as before, and held their ground. On the eleventh day of August, 1864, after quite a long period of comparative repose and freedom from Indian disturbances, a party of six or eight Indians suddenly appeared in the edge of the timber on the east side of the blue earth, near the town line of Shelby and Vernon and taking wholly by surprise mr noble g root and his two sons who were stacking green shot and killed mr root and seriously wounded one and i think both of his sons these indians then crossed the river in a westerly direction reaching the open country where the willow creek cemetery now is on that day mr charles mack of willow creek with his team and more had gone to the farm of mr hindman a short distance southwest of willow creek to mow hay for mr hindman and in exchange mr hindman had gone to the farm of mr mack to assist mr jesse mack in stacking grain mr mack and mr hindman were loading grain directly across the road from the cemetery when on looking toward the road but a few rods away they saw some indians coming directly toward them they both hastily got upon the load and mr mack whipped his horses into a run when in crossing a dead furrow mr hindman was thrown from the load pitchfork in hand striking his face in the stubble and dirt rubbing the dirt from his eyes as best he could so that he could see he started to run and when he was able to open his eyes he discovered that he was running directly toward the indians he reversed the engine somewhat suddenly put on a little more steam and made splendid time in the other direction toward the creek bed less than a quarter of a mile away once in the creek the water of which was very shallow at that time he followed the bed of the creek for nearly a quarter of a mile and then stopped to rest and to wash the blood and dirt from his face soon he left the stream and started up the bluff on the opposite side which was quite steep and covered thickly with timber and brush when nearly at the top of the bluff he came to a little opening in the brush and looking ahead about one hundred feet he saw those indians deliberately watching his approach utterly exhausted and unnerved he dare not run he paused and in a moment a burly indian drew a large knife and started directly toward him concluding that his day of reckoning had come mr hindman took the position of a soldier with his pitchfork at charge bayonets and awaited the approach of the indian the indian came to within a few feet of mr hindman and stopped each stood looked and waited for the other to open the meeting finally the indian turned as if to retreat and Mr. Hindman turned again toward the creek. He then followed the creek bed down to the house of Mr. Charles Mack, where he found a pony belonging to himself, which he had ridden there that morning, and started with all speed for his own home, where he arrived just before dark. His children were gone, his house ransacked, nearly everything broken or destroyed, and in the meadow a short distance from the house was the dead body of Mr. Charles Mack. By this time darkness had set in, his wife had gone that day about two miles to the house of Mr. Jesse Thomas to attend a neighborhood quilting. He again mounted his pony and started across the prairie for that place. When about half the distance had been made, his pony looked sharply through the semi-darkness in the direction indicated, and there, about three hundred feet away, were the Indians. Four of them were mounted, the remainder on foot. Mr. Hyman put whip and spur to his pony and ran him for about a mile. Then he stopped in a valley to listen for the Indians, but he did not hear or see them. On arriving at the house of Jesse Thomas, he found it deserted, ransacked, and nearly everything destroyed. It proved that his children saw the Indians attack Mr. Mack, and ran from the house, and secreted themselves in the very tall grass in the slough in which Mr. Mack was moving, and escaped with their lives. The ladies at the quilting had a visit from the Indians. They saw them approaching from a belt of timber but a few rods away and escaping by way of a back door to a cornfield, which came quite up to the house, all of their lives were saved. The Indians secured the horses of Mr. Root, and also those of Mr. Charles Mack, and those of Mr. Stevens, whose horses were at the place of the quilting. No more honest men, kind-hearted and generous neighbours, or hardy pioneers, ever gave their lives in the defence of their property and their families, than were Charles Mack and noble G. Root. A man was asked, why did you return to the West, after having gone back to New York and having spent two years there? His answer was, neighbors. Would you want to spend your life where the people twenty feet away do not know your name or care whether you'd live or die? We used to have neighbors in the West, but when our baby died in New York, not a person came near us, and we went alone to the cemetery. We thought we would come back home. How very many have had nearly the same experience. In the congested districts it seems to be every one for himself. On the frontier a settler becomes ill, and his grain is sown, planted, and harvested. Who buy? Neighbours. A widow buries her husband, and again the neighbours come. It is no light thing for one to leave his own harvest, and go miles to save the crop of another. But it is, and has been done, times without number by those who are tried and true neighbors. And the sentiment which prompts such kindly acts counts for something sometime, and it means something in making up the sum total of happiness in this short life of ours. What did we have to eat that first year? Potatoes and corn. No flour, no meat, some milk. I doubt whether there was a barrel of flour within three miles of our home. No wheat had been raised, no hogs had been fattened, corn and potatoes were the only food end of section 59 recording by Doug Shepherd